Hello, world. This is Codebreaker. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. Hey, can you hold on for just a second? We appreciate your patience. Please continue to hold, and we'll be with you soon. Old music is the worst, right? But sometimes you have to wait. Thank you for waiting. We apologize for the inconvenience and are working as quickly as possible to take your call. Let me tell you why we're here right now. Something happened with my phone, and all of a sudden, I can't text anyone. And they can't text me. So I'm waiting for somebody to help me figure it out. My name is James. How can I help you today? Hi, James. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right, except I get a problem with my text messages. Oh, no. Yeah. I know most of last week we've actually been having quite a few issues. The HTC One device went through an update that completely knocked out the uh, phone's ability to use uh, data, period. So this is something I'm not entirely too surprised by. So really quickly, Ben, would it be okay if I place you on a brief two- to three-minute hold while I go and ask my supervisor if we've reached a resolution for this? Okay, great. The software update. That is why we're in customer service hell right now. On Codebreaker, we decipher our complicated feelings about technology by asking straightforward questions with a sense of humor, a sense of awe, and hey, sometimes a sense of dread. This season, we got one question in mind, three little words. The answer isn't so simple. Um. Oh. uh, Um. Evil? A little, maybe, yeah. Is it evil? We are asking this simple question about one kind of technology in every episode. And today's topic is the update. This is something updaters and updatees alike, really all of us, can relate to. Whether it's about our screwed up phone. I'm sorry, we cannot complete your request at this time. The International Space Station getting some bad code. This is a very basic error. We shouldn't have done. Or the machines that keep us alive. It's been the single most revolutionary software update in the medical industry that I've seen. It might drive you crazy. It might save you. It might kill you. So the software update. Is it evil? Remember, there is a special code in every one of our episodes, so listen closely. Let's go back to my tech support call for a minute. One of the interesting things about it was I was talking to an expert at my wireless provider, Credo, which uses Sprint's network, but even the expert was having to do guesswork. Well, Ben, um, now we should have at least seen either... um, message failed or a message come in there. Yeah. Um, so I think what we need to do is actually escalate this up to my internal team. Does this mean that Android needs to like do another update or what? Um, it's very possible. Um, but right now we're not 100% sure on what's going on with that. Android tweaked the operating system that runs my Nexus phone, and it totally screwed things up. And my wireless provider, a totally different company, had to go down a rabbit hole to fix it. So go ahead and click on the system select there. Okay. Okay, home only selected then? Yeah. Okay. So go ahead and cancel that. 
Okay. This is not an unusual occurrence. It happens all the time. A tweak a company makes on the back end screws something up for thousands, maybe millions of users. And that's the simplest version. A lot of times, there's a whole web of companies involved in this kind of screw-up. Just in the past few years, we have built a hall of infamy around software updates. Apple's Apple Maps software, released by the company as part of the iOS 6 operating system to compete with Google Maps back in 2012, was such a nightmare that CEO Tim Cook issued an official apology. Apple released its own interactive map. They are awful, absolutely abysmal and unusable. Pretty much Apple Maps is an actual fail. Oh, and just a few months ago, Microsoft got into hot water for offering a feature to parents in Windows 10 where they can spy on their kids' web activities and it delivers them a weekly report. Something like, Dear Mrs. Johnson, your son Benjamin spent five hours watching cat video compilations on YouTube. Yeesh. The update isn't just about operating systems, though. It's about tiny pieces of software, a line or two of code that replaces an old code, or even something as basic as a single app. And as much as updates might feel like a pain in the ass for the user, it sucks for the person on the other side, too. How do I know? We found one of those people on the other side, right when his company was updating its app. My name's Brian Donahue. I am the CEO of Instapaper. We are launching Instapaper 6.4 and just playing the waiting game. Instapaper is that app that lets you save things for reading later. It's popular, has almost 8,000 reviews on Apple's App Store alone. And in this case, the waiting game means waiting for the Apple gods to give Instapaper version 6.4 a thumbs up. After a long approval process, including a review period and other logistics, Brian clicks release this version. And then he waits for the update to happen. So it says ready for sale. It is not showing up in the app store yet. It's a stressful wait. I feel I feel good about the release. Uh, just usually, like, we're a little bit more ready than we are right now. Ugh. Still not showing up in the store. So, whatever. Brian's team also has to deal with users, almost like providing special update customer service. So people are asking us if bugs were fixed. This particular bug was not fixed. And I'm aware of it. Clearly this guy is pins and needles aware of it. So I'm being apologetic. If there's anything like really glaring and it's actually like a big issue, we'll work on a, a very small release to fix those. And then we'll submit a minor update, which would be 6.4.1. Oh, I just turned to 6.4. So yeah, I guess it updated. You know, now we'll try to get reorganized and ready for the next push, which will probably be in another month or so. Not a lot of rest between updates. I'll give you this. Worst case scenario, Instapaper blows an update and gets some really bad reviews in the app store until they fix the problem. And when an app lives or dies, people's jobs can go away. But here's a much scarier story. It's that same moment of uncertainty when coders deliver an update and hope for the best. 
But these coders are delivering it from NASA Mission Control in Houston, Texas, 200 miles or so into the sky to a massive piece of technology circling the Earth at 17,000 miles per hour. You can actually see the International Space Station if you look up at just the right time during the 90-minute period it takes for it to circle the planet. Looks a little bit like a tiny distant plane among a starry night sky. On that tiny speck, there's a crew of scientists. Moscow Station for software upgrade. Go ahead. In the radiogram it says, turn off laptop. Um. In February of 2013, there were six astronauts working on the space station. Colonel Chris Hadfield was one of them. He remembers the day of February 19th very well. Sure, it's on my wife's birthday. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's kind of funny that you asked, do you remember that happening? Oh, no, we're blithely just unaware of everything. We lost all contact with the ground, and we lost insight into all of the systems of our ship. Marcy Kerr was on the ground that day. She is the International Space Station Development Manager. Development as in software development. She and her team keep tabs on all of the machines in the ISS. On orbit, there are 54 running computers. One of them is what Marcy calls the heart and soul of the whole system. And about once a year, that computer gets a massive software update. Well, it takes us about two years to work on a software package that's the primary software package that must go up every time we do an update, and that's this main heart and soul. So what I do is is I build this product, I test the hell out of it. That takes a very long time, and, and we hand it over to different sets of people so that they can test it in a way that's not the same, so that you can wring out any possible problem that you have before you ever make it to orbit. When the software update is done being tested, Marcy takes it down the hall to operations. And those are the guys that uplink it on orbit send the little ones and zeros up there and see that it gets migrated to the computers. And then, just like you and I, they restart. But during the scheduled software update on February 19th, something went wrong. Wrong enough that the really fundamental systems were at risk. Some of that software that I would think would be very critical that keeps the crew alive, keeps ammonia out of the cabin, keeps it cool, keeps it warm keeps fresh water there. That's all the software package, too. Pretty much everything, everything on the ISS is being touched by software, which means when there's a software glitch, it needs to be solved fast. Colonel Chris Hadfield and the rest of the crew knew something was wrong right away, but they didn't know what. We could no longer monitor all of the systems. So if we then have a subsequent unrelated failure, we were powerless to deal with it. And so it was It was a significant event. The astronauts scrambled to figure out what had gone wrong, but they had no idea and no one to talk to. The indoor part of the space station is sort of shaped like a long cylinder. Someone pulled themselves down to the Russian end of the cylinder to work a backup radio. Someone else tried to work another backup radio in the American end of the ISS. Eventually, the astronauts got in touch with the ground and started working the problem a few minutes at a time. You know, we would gather our, our notes and three of us would sit around the radio and say, OK, this is our problem. This is what we're seeing. This is what we've done. Tick, 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 tick. Now tell us what you think. And they'd give us a whole bunch of instructions and we'd scribble them all down. And then you'd be out of calm until you come around the world again for another 90 minutes. 
This is a space station, so there are backup computers. For the main computers, this heart and soul set I was talking about, there are, there are three. One is primary and running. One is in backup, ready to assume control immediately. And there's a third one that we keep um, just in case. And so all three of them have to be reloaded with software. And it's during the orchestration of loading one, bringing it down, bringing the other one up, loading the new software package in, that we bumped into this initialization of data allocation error. It was a bad line of code, and it spread like a virus from one computer to the next. It brought the whole communication system down. We can say that this was a problem that was discovered and solved in, what, three hours, four hours? What? To me, solved is software back on orbit that fixed the issue. I wish I had researched that better for you, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say a week. A week. But, but I, we, we got on it right away where we knew what we had made. The mistake was very quickly found by the software development team. Software and software updates are such a double-edged sword for you, right? Correct. I mean, Correct. On, the, on the one hand, they're absolutely necessary for the work that you do and the work that the, the, the astronauts do. And on the other hand, they can introduce a level of danger and chaos that... NASA wants to bring to, you know, below 0.5%, right? That's right. That's right. But I don't want anyone to forget it's science, right? And that's what we're here for. So yeah. we do take some risk, but it's, uh, we test the hell out of it. The software we put up on orbit annually and have done, there's four and a half million lines of code up there right now, is so complex. This is a very basic error <laughs> we shouldn't have done. And, but again, but everybody makes mistakes. Everybody makes right. mistakes. You're, you're right. You're right. But some, some things are just, I'm surprised that we had done this. But we did. And the way we've put the feedback loop back in place, we will not make this mistake again. Can you see a future where you could kill off the whole process of the update? There are so many software changes still needed. And if we're going to stay alive, it's not a matter of... Um, we're not just fixing minor things. We're adding major new functions. So, uh, you know, you need to update to survive. That's correct. It's really not an option. It's really not. All right, I'm not quite ready to make a call yet on good or evil when it comes to the software update. So hang with us. We'll be right back. I don't know if evil is the right word. Evil, I'm, I'm not convinced. You're using it for an evil reason, I guess it would be evil. But as a whole, I, I like it. I like them. I don't know. I hope they're good. <laughs> okay, we've zoomed out. We've gone all the way to near-Earth orbit. Updates headed literally into space. But let's reverse direction from the relative silence of space 
to the thrum of what might be our most important biological machine. If we're talking about how to have a good record on updates, the human heart is about as perfect as you can get. Over a billion years of software and hardware changes, our personal power supply has become a complex machine that is mission critical and usually functions perfectly. Until, of course, it doesn't. That's when we turn to technology. And I will now turn to Codebreaker producer Claire Tennisketter, who brings us a story close to our hearts. It doesn't start with an update, but it ends with one. You've probably seen a defibrillator before. It's that device used to shock people on TV medical dramas when their hearts are failing. What happened? Lost a pulse. Still VTAC. In this scene from the show ER, Dr. Pratt stands in his white coat, paddles in hand, leaning over a patient in cardiac arrest. They shock him. Got a rhythm. Good femoral pulse. And miraculously, his heart restarts. Welcome back, Mr. Gilman. On TV, everyone usually gets brought back to life before the last commercial break, no matter how long they've been dead. In real life, defibrillation doesn't work that way. It has to happen within about two minutes. Nine times out of ten, you die. That's why a lot of people with heart problems have tiny defibrillators installed directly into their chest. A huge medical device company called Medtronic makes one of these. It's a smooth, heavy silver box that fits squarely in the palm of your hand. Looks like a stopwatch with wires attached. Those wires are known as leads. And that tiny computer? It's running software. After she was diagnosed with a heart condition at age 43, Julia Lloyd had one of these installed. It's kind of like being a computer that gets, you know, turned off and restarted. (laughs) It felt strange at first, a visible bulge in her upper left chest where this computer is running inside her body. But she got used to it, and she thought the defibrillator would save her if she needed it. Then, in October 2007, Julia started hearing these news stories. Her defibrillator malfunctioned, shocking her repeatedly. And after the news stories came the lawyer ads. At Terrell Hogan, we think product recall news is worth repeating, and we want to share it with you. I'm Wayne Hogan, and this is one of those times. She found out that these wires, these leads, which connect her defibrillator to her heart, were recalled. That was scary. I'm in a high-risk group (laughs) with a recalled lead. And I'm still kind of new to that whole having a defibrillator implanted kind of thing. To understand the next part of the story, you have to know how these devices are supposed to work. I went to New York Presbyterian Hospital in Queens, New York, where Dr. David Slotweiner walked me through it. It plugs right in here. And just right like that. The leads run through the veins to connect the computer to the heart. Over time, the leads become a part of your body. Think of a fence being swallowed up by the growth of a tree. Once it's running, the computer monitors the heartbeat, which is normally between 50 and 100 beats per minute. And when you're exercising, it gets faster. But things get dangerous when your heart hits about 200 beats per minute. When the heart gets going this fast, it's probably a cardiac arrest. It's basically a failure of our biological electrical system. 
what can happen is that that normal pattern of electrical conduction from the top to the bottom can suddenly, without any warning, short circuit. People say the defibrillator shock feels like a horse kicking you in the chest, but it's pretty much the only way to make things right. So when the defibrillator detects 200 beats per minute, it shocks the heart so it does a kind of reset. But defibrillator leads are fragile. Each time the heart beats, those little wires move. And the type of lead in Julia's chest, the Sprint Fidelis lead, was breaking at abnormally high rates. When that break happens, the computer hears static. The computer reads that static as a heart going into cardiac arrest. And it shocks the patient. Repeatedly. And this can be a very dangerous loop because the wire is still fractured. And so patients can get 20 shocks in a row. It can be incredibly traumatic and, and dangerous. I talked to David Steinhaus for this story, vice president of Medtronic. He said this was a stressful time for his company, and rightfully so. Medtronic needed to fix its recalled product without asking about 300,000 people to go under the knife again. So what could they do? As it turns out, Medtronic's computers knew how to make a beeping noise. Maybe they could be taught to beep when the leads broke. That way, they could warn people that they needed surgery. They have this uh, wand with a 12-foot cord that uses radio frequency to communicate with the implanted device. I would call it like a Harry Potter magic wand. A magic wand that delivers a software update. In September of 2008, almost a year after the recall, the FDA announced this news. Medtronic's engineers figured out how to teach the computer the difference between a broken lead and a heart that needed help. Remember Julia? She got this update. It's like being a cyborg, I guess. I got my software updates, and, and you know, I, I felt a little more comfortable. Soon, she stopped thinking about it. Then one night, when she was at home... As I was going to bed, I heard what sounded like a very large construction truck backing up. You know, that steady beep, beep, beep kind of sound. But it sounded far away, and I'm drifting off to sleep, and I'm like, oh, gosh, I wonder if they're doing construction on the road somewhere nearby. The next morning, I wake up, and everything's fine. I go about my morning routine. I get the kids off to school. And as I'm getting ready for work, I hear this beeping sound. And it's that steady, you know, one-tone beep again. And I can't figure out where it's coming from. I remember walking into my daughter's room and going, well, I hear it in here, but it's not from the phone, or it's not from her clock. And I went into my son's room, and I'm like, wow, I hear it in here too. And then I walk out into the hallway and realize, you know... It's like it's following me. I'm literally standing in the hallway with my cup of coffee going, I wonder what that sound is. (laughs) And it was me. It was me. The update worked. It alerted Julia that her leads were broken and that she needed to get surgery to fix them. They were able to put in new leads without any complications. I asked Dr. David Slotweiner what he thinks of all this. So this software update um, overnight reduced the number of unnecessary shocks dramatically. And it's been the single most revolutionary software update in the medical industry that I've seen. Some of the most revolutionary software updates are just patches. An imperfect but essential way to fix a problem already built into a machine. 
Full disclosure, by the way, the CEO of Medtronic sits on American Public Media's board. Being able to update someone's surgically implanted defibrillator wirelessly with the wave of a wand instead of having to get direct access to the hardware is a nice technological evolution, and it is easy to forget that this isn't how updates used to work. These days, pretty much everyone knows how to update an app, takes a few seconds and a good Wi-Fi connection, but it wasn't always so, not by a long shot. In fact, when computers were moving from entire floors of academic institutions into bulky briefcase-sized items you would put into your house, updates were still the currency of nerds, not regular users. Partly because, yes, again, they were a huge pain in the ass. So I want to bring you another voice, BuzzFeed podcast producer Meg Kramer, and another story about one of the first commercially successful home computers, the Apple II. If you're around my age, seeing one of these things again brings back a flood of middle school memories. Apple, the most personal computer. Original cost, $1,298. How to get more than the base-level software preloaded on an Apple II? Let's let Meg tell us the rest. Out of the box, Apple IIs came preloaded with a programming language called BASIC, and that was it. There was no word processor, no calendar app, no Angry Birds. If you wanted software, you'd have to buy it separately and load it from a floppy disk. Or get in there and write the code yourself, an option that was cheaper and sometimes faster than ordering from a software company. Computer magazines in the 1980s filled the software gap by printing a few programs in every issue, like the recipes in Good Housekeeping. In between the articles, these magazines published the best work from the software community— Games, accounting tools, improvements on programs written by other people, printed out in long columns of raw code. And if you wanted the update, the very latest, you could copy one of these programs by typing it in on your computer, character by character. Okay, so um, you told me that you wanted to work on doing a um type-in program, as in the old days of doing a type-in. Jason Scott is a technology historian who works for the Internet Archive. And so what I did was I basically said, okay, well, an Apple II is a good standard home computer of that time, and I have a few of those at home. So what you have here is an Apple II Plus with, I believe, 48K of memory. I wanted to see what it was like to use one of these type-in programs the kind you might manually copy onto your Apple II circa 1985. So Jason brought me one of his old computers and a stack of magazines full of programs I could type in, from games to music-making software, even a home finance calculator. Okay, good. We plug it in and turn it on. So it says, I'm an Apple II, and then what you saw there was the floppy disk said, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. If you bought your software, here is where you'd load it from the disk drive. But I am starting from scratch. Jason hits a few keys and a blinking block appears, waiting for my command. Let me see if I've got – so the, here's, here's a short one. This is the first one I thought of when, I, when you mentioned it was okay. – down here it says um, Apple Kaleidoscope. Each program is made up of lines of code printed in the magazine the way they'd look on a computer screen. We want one that's easy enough for a newbie like me. Shorter is better because if I make even one mistake, it won't run. 
Jason flips past pages that are packed top to bottom with lines of characters that make no sense. Oh, so, yeah, by the way, gaze upon the hellscape of your future. Oh, my gosh. It's like looking at the phone book. It's worse than looking at the phone book. In the phone book, there's a sense of humanity and a sense of lives and a sense of space and geography. And all that oh is gosh. is a bunch of stuff. I really, I'm really starting to regret this decision that I've made. I yeah. really am. That's why we've got the we, we've got the oh uh, God. we've got the bunny slope. Like I said, the bunny slope is just simply Apple Kaleidoscope. Okay, and in these each of these programs is a nice short program you can type in. So you know these are easy. This is the shortest program in the magazine. It's supposed to draw a pattern of lines on the screen that look like a kaleidoscope. Easy, right? Wrong. So wrong. All right. So ten. Space. R-E-M. Space. Program. Producer Claire Tennisgetter helped me transcribe the code. At first, I made so many mistakes. I forgot a space, misspelled a word, skipped a line. I still don't know how to go back and fix them, so every time I had to shut off the computer and turn it on again. I have never worked so hard to make a computer do something so simple. I know who my tormentor is. His name is right in the byline, Danny Fott. So I called him up. Partly to complain, but really to ask for help. I guess it is simple, but yet it does something that visually looks pretty cool. So maybe it would uh, encourage beginners and uh, show them how to use the graphics, which was uh, a little more advanced thing to do. I've never, like, programmed anything before. I've never typed the language right into the computer. And I messed up so many times. Yeah, it, I know that frustration. It, it can be, it can just take hours sometimes. And if you don't type it exactly the way it's written, you might have a really hard time ever getting it right. So when it, when you do get it right, you do get this sense of elation. I'm probably, I'm going to go back and I'm going to, I'm going to reread this article and I'm going to tackle this project again. What advice do you have for me as I go back and try to do that? Uh, tap into your community. <laughs> so I'd be glad to help you out there because you were the first person to give me feedback on this article in the almost 28 years since it was published. I went and checked. So that's a bit of a thrill for me as well. And that motivates me to want you to be successful. I cannot imagine having this conversation with a programmer who worked on the latest version of my iPhone's operating system. According to Jason Scott, though, this camaraderie was an important part of the early software writing community. You just fundamentally need to reach out to people. Uh, and that's kind of like the big myth is that these are thought of as solitary machines. But in fact, they encouraged you to find like-minded people and become friends, many of whom are your lifelong friends. The more complex our software gets, the more we rely on companies to build and maintain it for us. But at one time, updates came from a community of users who were experimenting with new, powerful tools. Line break, last line. Okay, 100. Space, go to, one word, space, 30. Okay. Is it supposed to do that? (laughs) The screen's either, either broken or... The program is running. Even if this isn't what was supposed to happen, I still feel good. I think we've downloaded enough information to this episode. I feel updated on the way updates work and when they don't. And it's time to hash it out. 
Gus Lubin is the editor-in-chief, and Lauren Friedman is the health editor at TechInsider.io. Guys, thanks for coming in and talking about the update. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Gus, are you running the latest operating system on your phone? I am, yes. How's it going? Right now, I would say it's going well. When I updated to the beta of the latest operating system a few months ago, I sent out some angry tweets. Uh-oh. Lauren, what about you? <laughs> well, so my phone is definitely not running uh, the latest software. Is that a good thing? Do you feel good about that? Generally, yes, because I feel like usually when an app updates, I find it extremely jarring. It's, uh, you know, it's like someone's rearranged the furniture in your house or something. What did you guys think about the the International Space Station story? I mean, that's obviously, that's a little higher stakes, right? Talk about really old hardware. The International Space Station is really old. I mean, it's pretty impressive yeah. that they can keep updating it to the point where it's still functioning. <laughs> I mean, if yeah. phones lasted that long, Apple would go out of business. And the cost of just bringing any other, like, hardware payload up there is so high right? that I'm sure anything that they can do with software that they can, you know, you know, shoot through the atmosphere via radio wave, they would much prefer to do, right? Well, you bring up an interesting point there with both the ISS and the woman who had the machine in her heart that's an innovation to make software updates that can be done easily. So you can find a way to do a software update without landing the ISS, without cutting open someone's heart or someone's chest. Those are both useful innovations. At the same time, I wonder if that makes them more vulnerable to hackers. It always seems like a trade-off. You're always kind of gaining some convenience in exchange for some loss of security or privacy. I feel like we're on the side of good. I would say that I land on the side of good. There's a certain inevitability to it that if we're going to continue updating our technology, software updates are necessary. What seems to have been brought to light by this episode is that some software updates are done well, some are done poorly, and with any of them, there is a high level of risk of things going wrong. What do you think, Lauren? Sometimes I think there's too much of a kind of Wild West feeling with software updates that there's so much uncertainty and so much unpredictability. And I know, you know, the Instapaper CEO that you had on kind of breathing heavily as he was waiting for um, his (laughs) software update to to hit the App Store. Um, That that kind of real nervousness, it kind of actually is reassuring to see. But at the same time, I I wish that the people behind the updates knew better what was going to happen and that it didn't have to be so nerve-wracking. I think as a user or as someone with a device that runs on software implanted in my heart, I would feel better if the people who were releasing the update had a really strong certainty in what the update was going to do. So, Nope, we're all in this crazy boat together. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the feeling that makes me a <laughs> little uneasy. Yeah. All right, so not evil. Uh, I would say we're saying I'm not saying evil. Mixed. Gus, Lauren, thank you very much for talking with me about this. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Next week on Codebreaker. You know, everything was going great. Uh, tons of birds coming, and then the the hordes of squirrels descended. By the way, if you want to access all of this season's episodes, you don't have to wait for them to come out. You do have to find the code in this episode, though. You want to get started? Let me ask you this. 
What were you doing when that International Space Station update failed on February 19th, 2013? Heck, what was I doing? I have no idea, but I guess I could always check my Facebook page. Once you get it, you can input your code at the website codebreaker.codes. Our show is produced by Claire Tennisketter, edited by Dave Shaw, and made in partnership with the nice folks at the website techinsider.io. Go there, get updated on our stories and much more. Just don't believe what they say about us. It's really kind of weird. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. Codebreaker is a Marketplace production from APM. APM.